you have your Bibles with you, would you open them to the first psalm, psalm number one. Psalm number one. If you're not sure about the book of Psalms, just aim for the middle of your Bible. You'll hit pretty close to it, I'm sure. Psalm number one. Over the next few weeks, we're going to study some of the Psalms. Not every one of them chronologically. We're not going to hit every single Psalm, but we're going to start here with the beginning and work our way through some of the Psalms. You know, the book of Psalms is a book of worship. It's included in the category of Scripture of poetry, and it it really is a book written to, to lead us in worship, and in doing so, it discusses the attributes of God. It discusses man and who he is in relation to God. There's a wealth of biblical truth throughout the book of Psalms. And this very first psalm is kind of the introductory psalm to the study of the truth found in the psalms, the study of the character of God and his relation to his creation through the book of Psalms. And this first psalm really is a psalm of happiness. And I'm going to use that word happy and happiness today, although Joy might be a better word because when we're talking about the characteristic of a believer, joy is more apt because joy is not contingent on outside circumstance, whereas happiness is, and it can be transient. But I'm going to stick with the word happiness today. You know, there are literally thousands of books that have been written on happiness and how to find happiness. There's billions of dollars spent each year in the pursuit of happiness. The world has propagated many different avenues to happiness. People chase after happiness one way or the other. They look for happiness in one career after another, happiness in one relationship after another, happiness with one possession after another, happiness with one lifestyle after another. There's all kinds of pursuits of happiness. In fact, in the publication Psychology Today, if you go there and look at the leading psychological perspective on gaining happiness, here's what you're going to find. If you can just do four things, if you can have a positive attitude, if you can smile and be friendly, if you can cut the slack out of your life, and if you can be grateful rather than worrying, you'll be happy, according to the psychologist of today. But the problem is, nowhere in the wisdom of man or the devices of humanity is there true happiness. But fortunately for us today, we have the book of Psalms. And we have Psalm 1. And although Psalm 1 is very short and it is very simple, you need no complex theological understanding to decipher this psalm. It contains a valuable secret, and that is the secret to happiness. In this psalm, we find the secret to happiness. The psalm that talks about the blessed man, the person who is blessed. That word blessed there is one who enjoys happiness. That's the translation of that word. One who enjoys happiness. So as we look at this psalm, we're going to find the secret 
to gaining happiness. And herein we're going to find that happiness, to gain happiness, is going to involve avoiding certain things. It's going to involve embracing other things. All in this short little psalm. One theologian of old in discussing Psalm 1 said this, we have before us the picture of one who is certainly happy even now, who has a joy of which neither crosses nor losses can deprive him, who will be happy as long as he lives, and who has still more happiness in store for when death is to pass. It's a psalm of happiness, the secret to happiness. Let's just see what it has to say, beginning with verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which is which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Here the psalmist reveals the secret to happiness. And he begins by speaking about the preparation for happiness. You see, if we're to be happy in our lives... There are some preparations we can take. We can be prepared to gain happiness. And in fact, we see here that the secret to happiness involves some negative admonitions and some positive admonitions, some things we must avoid and some other things we must embrace. He starts with the negative admonition, that which we must avoid. See, to enjoy a happy life, there are things we must avoid. They're all listed there in verse 1. All these things we should avoid if we're to indeed enjoy a happy life. So what is listed here? What is it that I must avoid if my life is to be qualified as a life of happiness? He begins by saying we must avoid the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel of the ungodly. Now we understand the word counsel. People go see counselors to find direction. They receive legal counsel to have legal advice. We, we're familiar with that. This counsel here is counsel. It is advice. It is influence that is rooted in ungodliness. This is receiving counsel, guidance to be influenced by sources that are ungodly. This is to take the plans, the ruling principles, the attitude that governs your life and govern it by that which is ungodly. That's the counsel of the ungodly. In fact, Psalm 36 speaks of the ungodly and describes the ungodly by saying, there is no fear of God before his eyes. So this is counsel or influence directed by those who have no reverence for God, 
who have no concern for the truth of God, who do not esteem the scriptures as God has given. This is counsel, it is guidance, it is influence from a worldly source. This is when we take advice or influence from any other source other than God's word. This is being influenced by the world. That's counsel of the ungodly. To allow the world to influence us, to guide our lives according to the advice of those in the world. This is advice, my friends. This is influence that will come from individuals who are not fully committed to God or the pursuit of His holiness. I'm not talking about you reading a book written by an atheist. I'm not talking about you're you're tuning into the podcast of someone who's trying to actively refute every scripture. This is simply the influence of those who don't esteem the approach or the pursuit of holiness. This is simply guidance offered from the world who says there's nothing wrong with that God stuff, but here's a better way. Yeah, we believe in God, but here's what you really should do. This isn't denying God, it's just allowing the world to influence. Ungodly counsel. The influence of the world. Now, my friends, there's no denying. We are faced with ungodly counsel continually in this world. We have ungodly counsel, the influence of the world, that inundates our lives continually. Every mainstream platform for news, entertainment, social interaction offers to us ungodly counsel. It's there. There's no way to avoid hearing or seeing ungodly counsel. We should protect ourselves from ungodly counsel. We should try to limit our exposure to ungodly counsel. But the reality is this. If you live in this world, if you are engaged in any form or fashion with what's going on around you, you are exposed to ungodly counsel. You see it, you hear it, you can't help but see it or hear it. But the thing about it is, my friends, there is no sin involved in seeing or hearing ungodly counsel. Sin begins when we listen to ungodly counsel or accommodate it into our lives. When we accommodate the influence of the world into our lives, now we enter into the realm of sin. When we compromise biblical truth to accommodate the counsel of the world, now we enter into sin. You see, we're inundated by ungodly counsel. That's not a problem. The problem happens when we compromise biblical truth to be acceptable in light of ungodly counsel. And there's the folly for most churchgoers. Most churchgoers, especially those just a tad younger than me and below, but even a few in my generation, have grown up in a culture that is so inundated with anti-God propaganda that is promoted as normal that they have taken the truth of Scripture and compromised it to a fit ungodly counsel, the influence of the world. And that's why we have churches like we have and people so confused as they are because 
the influence of the world has been welcome into the teachings of the church and we have compromised the truth of the Bible. Yet the psalmist here says the very, th- the very first thing that we must avoid if we're going to have a life that's a joyful, happy life is the influence of the world, the ungodly counsel that is around us. But if we do engage in, accommodate this ungodly counsel, if we begin walking in the counsel of the ungodly, it doesn't stop there. It moves us to the next thing the psalmist says we must avoid. Once again, still in verse 1, he says, nor stands in the path of sinners. We must avoid the path of sinners. We must avoid the path of sinners. This is indulging in sinful actions and attitudes. It's moving beyond, I'm just allowing the world to influence me. It's now I engage in what they say and what they do. I engage in the same way of thinking. I have adopted their philosophy into my life. I now govern my actions according to the counsel of the world. That's sin. I've stepped into sin at this point. I am walking in that way. I'm standing in that place. I have slid down a little bit further just from receiving influence to now changing my actions and my attitudes. As I've accommodated the counsel of the world, now I engage in the actions of the world. Proverbs 4, verses 14 and 15 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on by it. But I can't pass on by it. I can't avoid it. I can't just move on along if I've listened to the counsel of the world. The counsel of the world leads me to the path of sinners, and I begin to indulge in sinfulness. See, sinfulness is where the counsel of the ungodly leads us. It always leads us to sinfulness. We move from simply seeing and hearing ungodly counsel to engaging in the actions influenced by ungodly counsel. When I indulge or accommodate worldly philosophy, cultural ideologies, just accommodating those in my heart will lead me to accommodate sin in my life. And so the psalmist says the second thing you have to avoid is the sinfulness that comes from such accommodations. It's more than simply being around a sinful influence. Now I participate in like influence. It's more than I've just hung around with immoral company. Now I'm engaged in the immorality. I'm participating in the ways of the world. My actions are not the actions that emulate the character of Christ. They're actions that emulate the culture around me. The way I think, the way I speak, the things I do, the way I dress, how I treat people emulates the world. It's not that I'm in a state of open rejection to God. I'm not openly openly rejecting God. I'm not saying, God, I don't need you. I'm not rejecting God's authority outright. It's simply I'm living a lifestyle that misses the mark of his call to righteousness. You see, God has set the bar high for his children. God doesn't lower the bar and say, ah, it's okay. God keeps the bar up here. 
and says, live up to it. He says, live up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, walk just as Jesus walked. He says, you be holy as he is holy. God never says, oh, you can't make it. Let me pull the standard down. We live in a world that says, lower the standard so everyone achieves. God says, no, my standard's here. Live up to it. Live up to the standard that is set. But when I'm walking in the counsel of ungodly and it leads me into the path of sinners, I can't live up to that standard because now I'm living in a manner that is unrighteous, a manner that prohibits holiness. I'm missing the mark of God's call. This is what the writer of Hebrews spoke of when he mentioned the sin that so easily ensnares us and keeps us from running with endurance the race that is set before us. I'll never achieve the standard of Christ if I'm in the path of sinners. I'll never be happy when this is my lifestyle. So I started with the counsel of the ungodly. I began to accommodate worldly ideologies. As I accommodated those, I slid on down into the path of sinners, and I began to accommodate the sin in my life as well. But it won't stop there. The slide keeps happening. There's a third thing he mentions, a third thing to avoid. Still in verse 1, nor sets in the seat of the scornful. We must avoid the seat of the scornful. You see, the influence of ungodliness, along with the path of sinfulness, leads to becoming just like the ungodly and the scornful that mock God, who disdain God, who have no need for God at all. See, that's where this all leads. When I will indulge worldly ideologies that will lead me into the path of sin, and I continue in that, I finally get to the point where I scorn God himself. I develop this self-willed pride that sees no need for God in my life. The phrase scornful talks about that. Those who would pridefully scorn God as their creator, their sustainer, their savior. They're the ones who say, I need no God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need the stuff from the Bible. That's wrong. It's not right. It's misinterpreted. I don't need any of that stuff. These are the ones who would openly scorn God and say, I'll make it on my own. The ones who have zero reverence for God, no concern for the Lord Jesus. They're the ones you invite to come to church and you're just like, no, I don't need any of that stuff. No thanks. I'll figure it out on my own. And you see the progression, don't you? From influence to action to opposition to God. That's what the psalmist is describing here. It's a slippery slope. The first thing we do is we, we step aside from the counsel of God's spirit and we allow evil influences into our lives to guide us. Then next thing we know, we're participating in actions, attitudes, and words that our Christian conscience would condemn as immoral, but we're engaged in them anyway. And it won't stop there as we continue and we find ourselves sitting down with those whose consciences have been seared, who indulge in selfish pride where they openly disdain God. This is where that phrase deconstructing faith 
comes from. And this is where it ends. It's a slippery slope. It reminds me of walking along the creek bank or the river bank. Some of you have done this. I've done it a lot of times. You're walking along that old muddy bank. And all of a sudden you begin to slide down the muddy bank. And if you can't get a foothold, if you can't find something to grab, you just keep sliding until you're down at the edge of the water. You're at the bottom. You were at the top, but you began to slide and you end up at the bottom. And when you're at the bottom, there's no happy place there at all. You see, when I just begin to accommodate cultural influence in my life, I begin to slide. And if I don't get a foothold, come to my senses and say, whoa, wait a minute. I can't accommodate the influence of the world. If I don't do that, I'll continue to slide down into the path of sinners. I'll engage in sinfulness. I'll accommodate sin. And if I don't come to a place of repentance where I can get a foothold and say, God, I'm sorry, I'll continue to slide to the seat of the scornful where my selfish pride will finally just take over and say, God, I really don't need you anymore. The psalmist says, if we're to have a happy life, we must avoid these things. Guard against these and recognize them if you're in one of these spots and call out to God to pull you up. You see, when you slide down the muddy bank, you can't climb back up by yourself. But that's okay. You see, King David found out the same thing. He talked about a time where he had fallen down into the muddy pit. And he couldn't get out. But here's what he said. I waited patiently upon the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit. He established my feet upon solid ground. Maybe you're here and you say, look, I think I'm already sliding. Call out to the Lord. And he's the one who can lift you up off that slippery slope and establish you again. So the psalmist begins with a negative admonition. Three things to avoid. But then he moves on to the positive admonition. He says to enjoy a happy life, there are things we must embrace. There are things we have to grab a hold of. There are things we have to make a part of our lives. Don't do these things, but instead do these. And here's what he says. This is moving on to verse 2. What must I embrace? Well, the first thing is delighting in the law of the Lord. Delighting in God's law. I must delight myself in God's law. That is, I must find joy in studying the scripture and give my full affection to God's word. Now that's two-parted. I find a joy in studying scripture. But also I give my full affection to God's word. I develop a love for the scriptures. Because that which I love, I will invest in. That which I love, I will study. That which I love, I'll spend time with. When you love something, you work at it. You foster it. You nurture it. Delighting in God's law means I find a joy in it and I give my love to it. It's reminiscent of the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me joy and rejoicing in my heart. That's how we should take God's word. 
something to be consumed and bring joy and rejoicing within us. We need to give our love to the scriptures. We need to fall in love with God's word and understand how important it is. We know the Bible gives testimony of itself in the writings of Paul that this is the inspired word of God. This is God's word. God recorded his word, had it written down for us. Upon these pages, we find the character of God. He had it recorded that we might know who he is and know his character, know his attributes, know all about him. As we look into his word, we begin to unravel his divine will for our lives. We begin to know his purpose. We begin to see Christ in the scriptures. We know the story of redemption and how to come to redemption. Within the scriptures, we find a treasure like none other. In fact, Psalm 119 tells us, I rejoice that your word is one who finds great treasure. There's a treasure to be had right here. You see, the scriptures reveal to us the reality of God, the truth of God's love, the redemption that God brings. The scriptures lead us to God so that we can know God, and there is no greater treasure you can have than God. And it all comes through his word. The revelation of who he is through his word. We need to find a joy in the scriptures and give our love to God's word. Some of us have a natural love for some things. Some of you can naturally love your children. Some of you have to work hard at it. I understand. Some of you naturally love your spouse. Sometimes you work hard at loving your spouse. Some of you naturally love your hobbies. Maybe it's embroidery, or maybe it's using your cricket, or maybe it's going fishing, or maybe it's woodworking, or whatever it might be. You just have this natural love for it. There are other things you work at loving. And I believe some of us just have a natural inclination to love the Scriptures. You might say, but... I mean, I know they're important, and I do want to read them, but I don't know that I love them. Well, here's what I encourage you to do today. Start asking God to place a love in your heart for his word. Start praying faithfully that God would grow a love within you for his word. That you might give your full affection to it. And you not only find joy in it, and learning it, but you find joy in applying it and living out the truth. We find a joy in being committed to establishing our lifestyles, basing our decisions on the truth of God's word. That's delighting in God's law. The psalmist goes on, though. He gives a second positive admonition. He says, you're going to delight in the law of the Lord. Then he goes on. And in his law, he meditates Day and night. You see, the, the second thing we should embrace is the continual meditation upon God's law. A continual meditation. Whereby I am continually pondering the precepts, the tenets, the truths of God's scripture. It's, it's continually rolling through my mind. I've studied the word and I take the word and I let it roll through my heart and my mind continually as I think it over and ponder it and try to pull out every nuance from what the Lord wants me to know. It's honestly the picture of a cow chewing cud. Is what it is. Most of you know about cows. They have all these multiple chambered stomach, weird digestive system thing. 
where a cow will go out in the morning and eat the dew-covered grass. And then as the sun gets hot, it goes in the midday and lays under a tree. And then it begins to kind of regurgitate and chew its cud. And it rechews the cud. And it chews the cud until it gets all the nutrients out of that grass it ate earlier in the day. That's the picture here. Where I take God's Word and I consume it. And then I keep it coming back up over and over and over as I process it and reprocess it and reprocess it until I pull every spiritual nutrient out of it. Until I get everything God can teach me out of it. I'm rolling it over. See, you can meditate every day and you don't have to light any stinky incense and sit on a mat and hum or anything like that. You simply read God's Word and let it bounce in your head back and forth like a ping pong ball. And some of us have a lot of room to bounce around stuff in our heads, don't we? But that's what it is. It's doing what Colossians 3 says when it says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you in all wisdom. I read God's word and I take in the truth of scripture and I let it take up residence. I let it dwell within me. And as it dwells within me, I just roll it over to pull all the wisdom out of it. That's meditating on the Word. As we do this, we gain the spiritual nutrients we need for spiritual growth to occur and to maintain spiritual health. You want to grow spiritually? You want to mature in your faith? You want to grow in the character of Christ? You need to consume God's Word. And then chew it and rechew it and rechew it until you get all the nutrients out of it. Now let me ask you, I don't have any cows or anything like that, but my grandpa was a farmer. I lived with him during the summer's lot up there on the farm. You know what we did every day? Every day. Every day we went and tended those cows. Even during the summer when they had plenty of grass to eat, every day we were out there. During the winter, you made sure they had hay. You know what I never saw my grandpa do? I never once saw him say, you know what? I fed them some hay on Sunday. I'll wait till next Sunday to feed them again. You know what he did? Every day he made sure they were fed. But you know what we have in the church? We have people who try to eat a little bit of God's word during Sunday school. They try to get a little bit of God's nutrients during worship. And they won't chew any more of God's word until the next Sunday. And you think you're going to be spiritually healthy? I don't think so. If I want to pursue happiness in my life, I have to be consuming God's Word and mulling it over daily to get the spiritual nutrients I need to be spiritually healthy in my life. I need to delight in God's law and meditate on it continually. And you know what happens when I delight in God's law and I meditate upon it? It leads me to obedience to God's law. That's where happiness starts to come. I'm delighting in it. I'm meditating upon it, and it guides me to obey God. Obedience. That's why we delight in it. That's why we meditate on it. The book of Joshua, chapter 1. Listen to what the Lord says to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Why? Well, he answers. That you may observe to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. 
The Lord said, Joshua, here's the thing. You take my word and you meditate on it day and night so that you can obey to do all that's written in it. You can obey it. And once you obey it, you'll see prosperity and success in your life. I delight in God's word. I give my love and affection to God's word. I take it in and I continually mull it over through meditation so that I might obey God's word and apply it to my life. If I do that, it's going to lead to happiness. But the psalmist is going to go on in greater detail to explain this. You see, the preparation for happiness involves getting rid of the counsel of the ungodly, walking in the paths of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful, and embracing, delighting in God's law and meditating upon it. That's where happiness is going to start to come because delighting in God's word and meditating upon it is going to produce happiness. And the psalmist explains that. So let's talk about the production of happiness. He's talking about the preparation for happiness. He moves on to the production of happiness. How does this work to make you happy? Well, enjoying, or excuse me, embracing and rejoicing in the study of Scripture, meditating upon God's Word, applying God's truth to my life in obedience while I avoid these other things, it leads to a life of blessing and happiness because it produces certain things in my life. And the production of these things are what actually make me happy. So we see the production of specific elements that come from delighting in God's word, meditating on it, obeying it. And because these things are my life, now my life is happy. That's what he's talking about. Let's look at what's produced when we delight in God's word, meditate on God's word, we apply it. The psalmist lists these. These are all in verse 3. He says, here's the first thing that is produced when I really am dedicated to God's word. And that is being planted. The first blessing of this is being planted. That is being established by God. Verse 3 says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. A tree that is planted. Not a tree that just grew. Not a tree that was just out there. A tree that is planted. This is being planted and established by God. This isn't happenstance. This is by God's grace through faith in Christ being planted into eternal life and established in God's kingdom. This is coming to the place of repentance where I receive Christ as my Savior and God himself plants me into his family and establishes me throughout eternity. I'm planted by God. Isaiah 61.3 says this. The work of Christ. Listen to what happens in our lives. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of happiness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. When I come to faith in Christ, God plants me. He plants me in eternal life. He plants me in his kingdom. He plants me within his family. He establishes me. And if God has established me, who's going to undo that? Who's going to take that away? See, 
there's happiness in knowing God has established me. There's happiness in knowing that this earthly life I live, it's nurtured by God. The eternal life I will come to know, it's secured by God. I am planted and established by God. And it's through His Word that I know these things. And then as I go through His Word, God takes me and He firmly roots me and establishes me in His truth. See, I'm not only planted into eternal life and to His kingdom, it's a part of His family, but as I delight in the Scriptures and meditate on them, God plants me firmly within the truth so that I'm not swayed by every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness of man that comes around. I'm rooted, I'm planted, I'm established in the truth. There's happiness when you're established that way. The psalmist goes on of a second blessing that comes, and that's being provided for. Being provided for. This refers to having an access of abundant grace. Having an access to abundant grace. Verse 3, that tree's planted where? By the rivers of water. The rivers of water. I mean, it's good enough for a tree to be planted by a river, but this tree is planted by rivers. That's an abundance. Not only does God plant me and establish me, but he does so that I have an abundance of his grace in my life, an abundance of his goodness, of his faithfulness, of his love, of his mercy. I have access to this great depth of who God is. There's an overabundance of God's grace and the strength he imparts in our lives. There's a, an unending supply of God's faithfulness, love, mercy, and grace. In fact, Psalm 136 has 26 verses in it. 26 times it speaks of God's enduring mercy and abundance and unending supply. God takes me and he establishes me, but he doesn't only establish me, he provides for me. In every way I need. You see, we're established in Christ. Peter says we're established by God in Christ so that we have everything, everything we need for life and godliness. He provides it all in abundance. And as I delight in God's word and meditate on it, it's in the depths of God's word that I access the depths of of God's grace, mercy, love. It's in those depths that I find the strength and the nurturing I need. So as I meditate on God's word, I'm provided for as I find this abundance of God and his character. But the psalmist doesn't start there, stop there. He continues. These blessings bring happiness, but he says there's still yet other blessings. He says the next blessing is being productive. Verse 3 says, and this tree brings forth its fruit in its season. This tree is a fruitful tree. It's productive. I'm delighting in God's law. I'm meditating on it. It's producing these things in my life, and it begins to produce this fruitfulness where spiritual fruit is produced within my life. It's fruit as described in Galatians 
Or the Bible says it's fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. It's the fruits of the Spirit, the character of Christ that is produced in me as I delve into God's Word and meditate on God's Word. God's Word becomes productive as spiritual fruit begins to be produced in my life. And not only is spiritual fruit produced within me as I grow in the character of Christ, but I become fruitful in God's kingdom. I find the value of fruitfulness in the life I live for the kingdom of Christ as he uses me to produce fruit for his kingdom. People search for meaning and purpose, but the reality is, as we delight in God's word and meditate on it, we find lives of productivity where we're purposefully driven to be fruitful in God's kingdom as we labor and minister for the gospel of Christ. We all have purpose and we're all productive when we do this because we're all laboring for the gospel, for the kingdom. There's a fruitfulness there. We're fruitful in God's kingdom as God's word does its work in our life. But I want to make a little side note here. Note the phrase used. This tree brings forth its fruit in its season. That means this tree doesn't bear fruit 12 months out of the year. It has a season of fruitfulness. I want to just pause here just for a second because I think some of you might need to be encouraged a little bit. God planted the tree. God established it. God gave it an abundance of grace and all that it would need. God made the tree productive, but in its season. And sometimes our season of fruitful ministry, it may change. Sometimes God may move us in ministry to be fruitful in a different area. Our season may change. That can be a difficult time because sometimes you wonder, what is my next season? Where is my next area? What do I do? If I'm not in a current season of fruitful ministry, I'm kind of on pause. Where do I go? What do I do? Where's my identity? Well, if you're not directly engaged in this fruitful time of ministry and you feel like you're in transition or you're just not sure, listen, here's what you do. You use this opportunity to prepare yourself for the next season of fruitfulness. If you currently feel like I'm on pause in my fruitful ministry, I mean, God had me doing this, but now he doesn't, and I'm not sure where I'm going, okay, don't freak out. Do everything you can do to be prepared for when he moves you to the next season. You get in God's word, you delve deep into the truths of scripture, you establish a good, powerful prayer life, you begin to equip yourself. And as you feel God moving this way or that way, you begin to learn what you can learn. You position yourself to be used. You get ready. Because God didn't call you into his kingdom to be a knot on the log. He called you to be a fruitful tree. And you might be in between seasons right now, but he's going to bring you to another season of fruitfulness. You need to be ready. And I would encourage you to continue to serve in those ways you know you serve anyway. The Great Commission hasn't changed. That applies to everyone. 
The call to interact in love among the body and serve one another, that hasn't changed. That applies no matter what. The call to be ambassadors in the kingdom, that applies regardless of which season you're in. Continue to do those things you know to do. Stay faithful in doing good. Do exactly what Galatians 6, 9 says, where it says, don't grow weary while you're doing good, for in due season you shall reap if you don't lose heart. Listen, some of you might feel like you're in between these seasons of fruitfulness. You keep doing what you know to do and keep preparing for the next season and God's going to bring it. He's going to bring it. He's going to make you productive and fruitful. The psalmist goes on. He mentions another blessing that comes from delighting in the word and meditating on it. And that's being prevalent. Being prevalent. The scripture says there in verse 3, this tree's leaf also shall not wither. Prevalence is synonymous to resilience. There's a resilience within us as we're deep in the word and meditating upon it. There's a resilience. We're blessed with this resilience to endure till the end whatever may come upon us. As we're sustained by God's grace, rooted deeply in his word, we do not wither away under the pressures of this life or what the world may throw at us. We don't wither away by trials, by hardships, by pains, or even when we feel emotionally dry or in a time of drought. We don't wither away. Why? Because we're rooted in God's grace. He sustains us. We have a resilience. We have this resilience that comes from the strength of God's word, being sheltered in his truth, knowing God's character and who he is because we are meditating in his word. It's understanding that we're going to be upheld by God because we trust his word and we know his character. In Psalm 37, the Bible says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him. By his hand. How can I have the resilience to face the difficulties of life, the trauma, the pain, the suffering, the hardships? Because I know as I'm rooted in God's word, God has said, I will take my hand and I will uphold you. You may fall, but you will not be utterly cast out. I will strengthen and uphold you. I'll give you the resilience to make it. There's happiness when I know the resilience of God in my life. One other thing the psalmist says here about the blessings that come from delighting in the word and meditating upon it. And that is being prosperous. He ends verse 3 by saying, And whatever he does shall prosper. This man is blessed because whatever he does prospers. But before you go out, and try to buy a new car, let's pause for a minute. You see, this happy person in this psalm experiences the prosperity that God brings into his life and it's spiritual prosperity. Spiritual prosperity. It's the prosperity that God brings in regard to delighting in the word and meditating upon the word. The blessings that come from the word are prosperous in this man's life. Spiritual prosperity. And my friends, that's the best kind of prosperity you can have. Paul told Timothy, for while bodily training, 
is of some value. Godliness is of a value in every way. It holds promise in the present life and also the life to come. That just means this. You can try to be prosperous physically, but true prosperity is spiritual prosperity. And it has effects in this life and in life to come. Spiritual prosperity is the best kind of prosperity. Prosperity and holiness and the prosperity that holiness brings. Prosperity in the pursuit of Christ and the benefits it has in this life and the life to come. Spiritual prosperity, the prosperity of spiritual growth, the prosperity of being conformed to his image, the prosperity of abiding in God's will. There's prosperity that comes from delighting in the law and meditating upon it as we prosper spiritually. And when I'm prospering spiritually, I enjoy a happy life. Here the psalmist points out, These are blessings that will be produced when we delight in God's word and meditate upon it. And as these blessings are produced in our lives, they lead to a state of happiness. You see, as I go deep in God's word and I meditate upon it and God's word begins to produce these things in my life, I begin to realize I'm enjoying life. I'm living a happy life. Not because my goal was happiness, My goal was finding joy in God's word, giving my affection to God's word, meditating upon God's word. But then God's word produced these blessings in my life that led me to a state of happiness in life. So we can prepare ourselves by staying away from certain things and embracing delighting and meditating in God's word. We can find the production of these blessings that will lead to happiness. But there's one very crucial element the psalmist puts in here you have to recognize. See, there's a prohibition to happiness. There is something that will keep you from enjoying happiness no matter what you try. You can try to study God's Word. You can try to memorize the entire Bible. You can try to live your life as a super-duper-duper super saint. But there's one thing that will prohibit happiness from happening for you no matter what you try. The psalmist points out here in verses 4, 5, and 6, those without Christ have no hope of happiness. If you're without Jesus, I don't care what you try. You're never going to find a joy or happiness in life. It doesn't matter. You can work hard as you want to work. You can do all you want to do. You can be the best person this world has ever seen, the most moral person this world has ever seen. But if you don't have Jesus, you'll never know happiness. And in verses 4, 5, and 6, the psalmist describes a life without Jesus. He begins by saying, these people who do not know Christ, their life has no true substance. There's no true value to what they do. There's no substance there. In fact, in verse 4, he says they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. That chaff, that part of the wheat that's no good, that when they were separating the grain from the chaff, they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow it away because no one wanted it. It wasn't good for anything. In the Bible, when you read the word chaff, it is synonymous with emptiness and worthlessness. The psalmist says, look, 
The person who doesn't have Jesus, that person has an empty and worthless life. Is it any wonder they can't find happiness? The life they seek is just empty and worthless. All their earthly accomplishments, all their worldly advancements really amount to nothing in the end. It's like chaff that's blown away. When this life on earth ends, everything they thought mattered would just blow away. Everything they tried to find meaning, to find happiness, to fill the emptiness, it'll just be worthless. It'll just be blown away. Here in this life, everything they search for to find substance, to find purpose, to find happiness will leave them wanting and empty because they're trying to fill a need of their soul that only Jesus can fill. And everything they grab a hold of is empty and worthless. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have happiness. He goes on to continue his description. He says these people have no place in God's kingdom. Verse 5, he says, they shall not stand in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous. See, apart from Christ, no one can stand before God. No one will endure the judgment. And in fact, these people cannot stand in the judgment. The picture is this, they cannot stand with an uplifted head in confidence. They stand in shame knowing they've rejected Christ and have no hope. The only judgment they stand at is the great white throne judgment where they're cast out into eternal damnation. They have no place in God's righteous congregation of His redeemed. There's no place for them in heaven because they've rejected Christ. They can have no happiness. The psalmist describes one last aspect of their life without Christ. In verse 6, it says, But the way of the ungodly shall perish. See, the ungodly shall perish. That, that term, perish, there is a term of complete finality. It refers to the reality that without faith in Jesus, a person is eternally lost, completely and finally subjected to the torment of a place called hell, and there's no undoing it. There's no, you're there temporarily. There's no, well, you'll get out of it later. It's permanent, final. Complete finality is the description of that word. When you perish away from Jesus, it is a complete finality. There is no hope for you. Is it, easy, is it any wonder that apart from Christ, you cannot know happiness? Of course, the psalmist does point out there in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. When my faith is in Jesus, when he declares me righteous before God, when God adopts me into his family, he knows my way. He keeps his hand on me. He knows everything about me, and he safeguards me and brings me into his presence. And that'll never stop. That'll never change. It's throughout eternity. So, friends, I want you to be happy today. I want you to be like the Duck Dynasty guy. Happy, 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 right? Some of you need to grow some beards, though. Here's the thing about happy, happy, happy. Happy, happy, happy only happens when you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
And then when you know him as your Lord and Savior, you need to get away from the counsel of this world. You need to guard yourself from standing in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful. You need to delight in God's word, meditate it day and night, and let it produce the blessings it grows in your life so that you can know happiness. Where are you at today? Are you happy? You can be. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you right there where you're at to ask yourself in your heart, am I happy? Am I happy because I know Jesus? Friend, if you don't know for sure you know him, God hasn't made it difficult. God simply says, if you will call out to him in sincerity, if you will say, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, that I can't make this life work on my own, that I have no hope of eternity. Jesus, I admit it, I can't be happy. But I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe you've risen from the dead. Jesus, I'm confessing right now, I want you to come into my life to forgive me and be my Savior. Jesus, I'm trusting you to change my life and make me happy. You can do that today. Maybe you're here and you know that your faith is in Jesus. You're a born-again believer. But maybe you have allowed the influence of the world into your life and you started sliding down a slippery slope. Or maybe you know you've already gotten on that path of sinfulness. Maybe you're almost to the bottom where you become a scornful person towards God. But the Bible says when we purge ourselves, cleanse ourselves from that, when we confess that, and we want to draw near to God, He draws near right back to us. See, if that's you, Christian, you're a born-again believer and you've started down that, the Bible says if you just repent, if you just say, God, look, I admit I've been doing this and I know what's wrong and I am sorry, but I want to be back close to you, God. God's not far off. He's right there. You'll find restoration with your Heavenly Father. Maybe you need to pray for a love for God's Word. Maybe you need to pray for a commitment to meditate on His Scriptures. Maybe you need to pray that God will help you recognize the blessings that His Word brings into your life so that you can learn to grow happy in those blessings. I don't know how God is speaking to you today, but here's what I do know. He will respond if you'll answer back if you'll just call out.